So, what did we talk about on Tuesday? Anybody remember? Supply and demand. What about it? Yes. Yep, you're right. You want to find where that magic number is. You know, you don't want to sell product too cheaply because if you do, you're putting in a lot of extra effort to produce that product just to send it out the door without capturing as much value as you can from that. But on the other end, you don't want to sell it too expensively because consumers won't buy it. You know, you're not capturing as much audience as you could if, if you had found that correct price point, you know. And so... It really is kind of a, you really should do focus groups and studies on the front end to find out where the consumer's at. You know, if you've got a really good product and you start even putting it on the market for 20 bucks, well, it might blow up and be gone. And you think, well, could have asked 30 or 40 bucks and still gotten, you know, sold the same amount of units, but got a lot more value out of that. So great. Anything else we talked about on Tuesday you guys remember? Hmm. We talked about economics. Talked about micro and macroeconomics. What do we say about that? Anybody remember? You were talking about how Apple takes everything that you're interested in and that experience everybody that you know and they know their target audience. Yep, micro is Apple looking at me as an individual and then they can extrapolate from that <laughs> the value they can get from not just me but my family, even through generations. They can say if we can keep this user in this ecosystem, and they do things to do that. Like, it would be difficult for me to leave that ecosystem because my pictures, my music, my data, it's all tied together. So, yeah, there's a way that, you know, that's just a great example. Um, but my, macro is looking at nations, you know, what this nation is doing in the trends. Another way to look at it, though, at a macro level, Walmart has, uh, Walmart was the largest uh, they are the, the, the largest private employer in the United States, but at one time they had the, the largest private computer network in the United States. And you could push a button in one of their computer server rooms and it would print you out a typical receipt that people are buying from your store. And so they would look at all the transactions and you can look at what most people are buying. And that's like a macro look, even though it's at a store level. But you can do it for the entire district and company as well. Really, really fascinating stuff. And it gets into being able to do critical analysis. And one of the main takeaways I want you to have from this class is it's all about data. It's all about, um, well, when it comes to people, it's all about relationship management. But when it, when it comes to business, the more you know, the better off you're going to be. The more you can capture data and analyze it and understand it, um, the better off you're going to be. If you, if you know where consumers are at financially, um, how they find your product. Uh, ha like when you have a website, they look at things like, if I post an ad on Facebook, they analyze how many people view that ad, that's they scroll through, how many people click it, what causes them to click it, what do they do after the click, that it takes them to a website, what do they click on after that? And they analyze that click-through rates all the way through the transaction, and they try to understand what causes, where are the biggest barriers? is the barrier, after they click the ad, how do we get that ad click to translate to, all the way through to a transaction? Just asking you guys, what do you think a barrier for an online purchase is? What do you think stops people from going from an ad to a purchase? Mm -hmm. Who? Shipping, that's one, okay, what else? 
What do you guys think? This is just a conversation. For me, it's one of the things is how many steps it takes to go from the first click to the last click. That's a known thing in online selling. So how many clicks do you think it should take you to go from the first click to the last click? Yeah, it needs to be short. Boom. Like one, two, three clicks. Yeah. Click I'm interested. Click it's in the cart. Click I'm buying. Very simple. You know, but if you've got 10 clicks, that's 10 commitments you're asking for the customer to give you. I want you to commit to clicking this button. Then I want you to commit to clicking that button. And so that's things that you have to think about. Like how do I reduce barriers to my customer? You know, if, if you decide to open up a business in a strip mall out there somewhere, like how does that, you have to ask the customer to commit to coming to you out there somewhere. That's not something that customers do. You know, if you've not analyzed the traffic patterns, you might be asking the customer to do something they don't normally do. You want to make it as easy as possible for the consumer to get your product or service into their hands. And so we're going to continue talking about economies and the nature of business uh, as we round out chapter two today. So we talked about capitalism. That's one of the topics we talked about on Tuesday. What is capitalism? Free markets. You remember Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand? What do we say about the Invisible Hand? I use the hamburger example. Meaning that if I go out and I seek my own selfish interests, that other people's interests will be made because of that. So by, by me wanting to go get a hamburger, I'm helping the farmer that raised the cow, the baker that made the bread, the ketchup seller, the, the mustard seller, the lettuce, tomato, onion sellers, and the people that made the packaging, the people that shipped the, the products to a store. I mean, all these different stakeholders benefit by me wanting to have a hamburger. And in order to have that hamburger, I had to go out and get a job. And so that job means I'm doing something to produce a product or service. So for me right now, that service is education. You know, I'm in education management. And so by me doing that, I get a paycheck, take part of that paycheck and go buy a hamburger. And that that wheel that we showed last time of that interaction between industry and households, it just keeps flipping back and forth. You know, I go provide a service or, or, or provide a good. Somebody buys it. I get money. And then I go distribute that money to the economy and it reflows back to me. So, um, but we're going to talk about a different social uh, or different type of uh, system. We'll talk about socialism a little bit. We'll talk about communism. <clears throat> so socialism is an economic system based on the premise that some, if not most, basic businesses should be owned by the government so that profits can be more evenly distributed amongst the people. Entrepreneurs run smaller businesses. Citizens are highly taxed. Government is more involved in protecting the environment and the poor. Keep in mind, in this class, we'll talk about a bunch of different systems. We live in a capitalistic system. The reason I like capitalism because it aligns the incentives. Uh, it's not a perfect system. There is no perfect system that, that we've invented yet. But capitalism aligns the sentence that if you go do something, there will be a reward at the end of that. Um, socialism has pros and cons too. So with socialism, you're saying that we're looking at equitable distribution. Um, some people might not view it's fair that the few have all this and, and, the, and the many do not. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? So I'm glad you said equal because there's a difference between equal and equity. And I can explain it very simply with this idea of a fence. Let's say that we all want to cross a fence, okay? 
The fence is achievement, whatever that is. And I say, I want to do something equal. So I give everybody in the room a two-foot box to stand on to help them get over that fence, okay? You with me? Everybody with me? Problem is, some people are taller than others, correct? So a two-foot box to you might be awesome. You're over. But if somebody that's two feet shorter than you, that doesn't help them a lot. You know what I'm saying? That's I mean, they, yeah, they got the two feet, but they're still not achieving. So although it was equal, it was not equitable. Equitable means the two-foot smaller person gets a four-foot step. And then you might think, well, hey, <laughs> wait a minute now. I got two, they got four, what's up with that, you know? But at the end of that, at the end of that equation, they both get over the fence. So there's arguments to be made on both sides. And in our government, in our system, you hear those arguments. Hey, this person's getting two bucks, I got one. What's the deal with that, you know? Because if you look at taxes, you know, people that uh, work but don't, but ha and have children that don't make as much money as some wealthy individuals, well, wealthy individuals might pay more taxes and this couple with children might get a large tax refund. You know, is that equity or is that, you know, what, what's going on there? And people argue with that and they talk about how taxes are used for different projects and things like that. So this is the constant push and pull of our society. Other comments or ideas? Sir. Go ahead. Yeah, he was like, uh, the difference between fair and equal, like if we were going on a hiking trip, and what would be equal is to give everyone a bike so they can all go and hike comfortably. Sure. But what if there's someone with a wheelchair mm -hmm. or someone who can't fit on the bike or there's little kids? Sure. Do you still give them all bikes because that would be equal? But what would be fair is to give the little kid a tricycle, to give the person on a wheelchair a little ride in the milk cart. Right. So, so that's the push and pull society. But. Sounds like your Sunday school teacher is talking about the same topic, just in a different context. So really cool. Other con comments? So, yeah, it's just it's important to look at things through those lenses. One of the hardest things to do as an individual is look through lenses of other people and try to see the world through the way that other people see it. That's a difficult thing because we only have our individual worldview. I'm me, I'm looking at the world through the lens that I know based on the experiences I've had. And if I did that and only used that lens, I would be very limited to the way that I see the world. But if I am a manager and Kelsey works with me, I like to look at things the way you look at it. So I know that if you feel like you've been taken care of, and that's what you call empathy, to understand how's Kelsey feel about this decision if we do it, and how's it going to impact Kelsey, and how's she going to feel about that, you know? So... We want to look at the world through other people's lenses and try to understand that. So other comments about socialism. We do have a quasi-socialistic, capitalistic system in our country. And we just do. Um, there's a lot of what they say, redistribution of wealth. Um, part of that is the equity thing, you know, where we're trying to uh, make sure that we don't have... Here's, here's another reason why we do that, um, and it's not often not talked about. If we allowed for extreme, extreme poverty in this country, there's a high uh, correlation between poverty and crime. And we've already got crime problems, but if there was rampant, rampant poverty in this country, you'd have a lot more crimes of desperation. Um, I think you've probably seen videos of people when you watch TikTok of going into Walgreens and California and, and stealing a bunch of merchandise and stuff like that. Yeah, that kind of stuff would just be just rampant where um, people are just robbing and, and doing all kinds of terrible crimes. 
So there's a rationale to trying to keep society together and making sure there's a safety net for folks. It can be abused. I wanted to note that. So socialism has been more successful in some countries than others. This photo shows Denmark's clean and modern public transportation system. In Greece, overspending caused a debt crisis that forced the government to impose austerity measures that many Greeks oppose. What factors might lead to slower growth in socialist countries? What do you think based on what we've talked about so far? Greed. Greed? Why do you say that? Because, like you said, you're wondering why they got two bucks and you got one. Yep, and it misaligns the incentives. So if, I, if, if you live in a capitalistic country, you say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to make a million bucks, you did that. <clears throat> but in a socialistic country, they're going to tax you heavy on that. And so you might not be as inclined to go do that same thing because especially if you grew up in this system and you would try to go over there and do it, it might challenge you to, to look at it, you know. So other factors that you might think of, if any? I think, the for me, though, it's the change in incentives. That's what I would say on that. All right, so benefits of socialism, social equality, free education, free health care, free child care, longer vacations, shorter work weeks, and generous sick leave. Um, <clears throat> there's a documentary called Sicko. I saw it years ago. It's by Michael Moore. It's really interesting. Um, if you just look at it objectively, it talks about basically healthcare in other countries. And it's a give and take. Uh, a lot of you guys are not old enough yet to deal with health insurance that much. Uh, I deal with it. But uh, my wife is actually a medical insurance biller, and, and, and she, did, she deals with that on a daily basis. It's, it's really, you can see there's challenges with our health insurance system in this country. <clears throat> I looked it up this week. We have $195 billion, with a B, of medical debt in this country. $195 billion. So, yeah, there's something wrong with the system. And I've looked into, like Canada and Great Britain and other countries that provide free health care, and there's pros and cons to that as well. It's not just like it's a, a miracle thing, but it would be interesting to have a system where if you're sick, you're just taken care of, you know. Uh, if you have a baby, you don't get a $3,000 medical bill, you know. Um, that, that would be an interesting system. <clears throat> if I can change one thing on this, this slide for our country, though, I think we need to get to a place where we have shorter work weeks as a society. This idea of 40 hours, um, and I'm not saying this for my benefit, I'm just saying it in general, I think most workers after the pandemic or post-pandemic are looking for opportunities to work remote or to work less hours in an office setting. Um, I believe in what's called a results-only work environment, where if, if you do your job, we don't care if it takes you 10 hours or 40 hours, get it done. That's why we're paying you to do, the, do this job. Um, but, yeah, this idea that you have to be in a box for 50 hours a week or 40 hours, I think that's an old way of thinking, and I think younger generations are more and more resisting that. They don't want that. They want a, a more flexible work schedule. Even if we had one remote day a week, I think that would be a tremendous impact to our society. People would have more time to rest. They'd have more time to, to do things in their personal lives. So I think, I think I would like to see that happen in our society. Any comments on this? <clears throat> I'll tell you what, I'll ask it a different way. If you could have one of these things in, uh, if, of your choice in this country, what would it be? No, uh, under socialism. Like, uh, which one of these bullets would you take? Free education. Why do you say that? It's way too expensive. So I used to work at a private college, 
And I was looking at tuition today. To go to a average private school, private college around this area um, would probably cost you eighty dollars to $100,000 without scholarship. Yeah. When you can't factor in food and board and all that stuff. Yes, sir. I feel like it would be nice, but it also, like, like deduct from the uh, value that we put on college scholarships. Like, when you look at, like, a Harvard scholarship, like, I don't know, I just feel like it's, it's prestigious. You know? It is. Well, Harvard would probably, it's a private college, so it wouldn't be, this would be public institutions like NC State and Topini Colleges, Chapel Hill. But, yeah, there would be private schools that would be prestigious and elite, and you'd still be vying for those scholarships, you know. But free college, like, I think um, we're getting close to that already as far as um, the community college level because a lot of students, who's CCP or CTLA in here? Yeah, Gracie. And so you're getting free college classes, correct? And so there's going to be more and more of that type of experience for students. My daughter, she is in the ninth grade, and she's taking some free college classes this year. And so we're going to see this merging of K-12 and junior colleges like us, you know, where more and more students are doing that. So I think that is probably the most likely thing that's going to come from, uh, from this list. So is there anything else anybody would want off this list if you could just snap your fingers and make that happen? Free health care. Free health care? Why do you say that? Okay. And then he, uh, that's, that was in 2008, so that was when that whole recession thing happened, so he couldn't work, he had to pay off the medical bill, he didn't pay it off until like a couple of years ago, Right. because it was like $80,000. Oh my gosh, yeah. for breaking his arm? Right, well, I think around, well, somewhere around there, it took him a while to yeah. get back on his feet and then pay it off. My de- my buddy had a heart attack. It's a quarter million dollars. He's hey, listen. True story. This happened over ten years ago. He's still paying bills on that. Yeah, he was paying like he had like all these different bills, and then he'd pay one of them off, and then move that balance over here as far as the payment. And he's just been doing that snowball method, and he's still paying on that because he's just paying the minimums on the other one. Yeah, and see that. I'm not going to get on the soapbox, but that's problematic, you know what I mean? Um, and my wife, who works in medical billing, she, she'll tell you that if you do not have health insurance, your bill will get cut in half. So if you go to the doctor and it's $800, if you've got insurance, you're paying 800 But if you don't have insurance, they'll say, oh, it's, it's only 400 half price. And I'm like, how, that how does that – that doesn't even seem ethical to me. Go ahead. Do you, like, call up? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, see, it's become normalized because it's the entire system, you know, and it's it to me it's completely unethical and. Uh, Well, this is getting to the heart of what I'm trying to get to is that we have a capitalistic system and yet we don't allow for free competition in the medical insurance industry. And the reason why why is because years ago somebody said we can make bank if we just corner the market 
and not allow across state line competition. And so this this unit within the state can you know, can charge whatever they want, and there's no free competition for that. So of course there's no incentive to lower prices. You know, I mean, and if you go talk to somebody with Blue Cross Blue Shield, I'm not trying to be the bad guy here. I pick on every company. So if you're listening. But if you go talk to them, they, they'll cry that, oh, we spend billions of dollars on our, you know, they'll tell you all this sad story. But at the end of the day, they're a nonprofit that makes a heck of a lot of money, you know, and there's there's a lot of money to make in that industry. So um, there's just a lot of normalized, unethical things in my mind that, uh, that that everybody knows is broken. One more digression, then I'll keep moving forward. One of my undergraduate degrees is in criminal justice. And... I went through this program as a second program, not really knowing what I was getting into. And after I graduated with that program, I realized just how jacked up the criminal justice system is. Uh, yeah, my sister is law enforcement, and she is trying to uh, finish her graduate degree and move on from law enforcement into education because the system is completely jacked up. And lawyers, judges, the cops will tell you it's jacked up. But they don't individually have the power to fix it. You know, they're a part of a system that is 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 full of corruption and full of uh, uh, many many challenges. Yeah. So, yeah, I won't I won't go down that direction. We'll we'll probably revisit it this semester. But um, <clears throat> so let's talk about some negative consequences of socialism. There's few incentives. That's what I just said. Why should I do this? Why should I go out and take a risk to to start a business when? I'm not going to be able to reap the full reward from this. Good. Yeah. Brain drain is the loss of the best and brightest people to other countries. So we get a ton of smart and talented people from other countries. They leave their country and come here because they know they can be successful here versus you know playing ball in another system that's not going to reward them for their talent. Fewer inventions and less innovation <coughs> Because the reward is not as great as capitalistic countries. <coughs> so, at the end of the day, there are some good things about socialism, but ultimately it leads to some negative outcomes. So, this leads us to communism. An economic and political system in which the government makes almost all the economic decisions and owns almost all the major factors of production. Prices don't reflect demand, which may lead to shortages of items including food and clothing. Most communist countries today suffer severe economic depressions. The great thing about the world is that you can see these different economic systems playing out in real time. And so we showed an example earlier of North and South Korea last Tuesday. You see South Korea is booming. Lots of economic activity. Things are going well. But if you look at North Korea, it's desolation. It's... Uh, North Korea is such a sad story. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's like 1984. It's such a sad story because they have brainwashed an entire population to believe what the government tells them. And the Internet is illegal. They have uh, people that smuggle in contraband in the form of flash drives to show people <clears throat> what is happening around the world that they're missing out on. But they're taught to not believe that. It really is quite a dystopian novel. So starting in the 1990s, Russia made major changes from communism toward a viable market economy. Still, there are a few laws in place that help promote small businesses, and active um, black market remains for many goods. This shadow economy represents as much as 20% of the country's GDP. 
So why are black markets bad for economic growth? Black markets meaning that they're not a traditional marketplace mm-hmm. where goods and services are sold. Okay, what do you got, Kelsey? Do you have something too? Um, I thought I saw your hand so, pop up. Well, kind of. It's like, I was thinking that, but then I like reread it. I was going to say because like black markets aren't affiliated with the government, they're not getting taxed on anything. So, yep, so there's no, there's no oversight. There's no regulation. There's no taxation. There's no consumer protection. Um, and often in black markets, crime is involved. And so... Um, a very popular black market item is what? What do you think? Who? iPhone. Okay. I thought the number one thing you guys would say was drugs. But guess what? Guess what the number one thing I'm thinking is? Tide detergent. Tide detergent is a huge black market item. People will steal Tide. Have you ever noticed that the Tide and detergent is under lock and key in some stores, or it's got a, like a like one of those. Theft prevention things on it. Yeah, somebody, yeah, unlock the Tide. It's a, it has a huge reach. So you can steal a $20 bottle of Tide from the store and resell it on the black market for uh, 10 to 15 bucks. You'll get back because people love that brand and it has a huge resale value on it. So, yeah, believe it or not, that's a huge black market item. I know it sounds nuts, but people do it. Yeah. Um, but all the things we just said is a reason why black markets are bad for the economy. Bless you. Like I said, crime is often involved, no taxation, no consumer protection. Let's talk about consumer protection. We'll get into it in the semester, but what does that mean? That Bless you. Yeah, if you get sick, injured, or something, there is no accountability for that because you bought it as a, as a third, from a third party. Um, in fact, using the Tide example, somebody could take that and put, have an empty Tide jug and cut it and mix it with some other chemicals or something, and before you know it, you've got burns or something on your body that, you know, anything can happen. And so two major economic systems are the free market economies and command economies. Free market is an economic system which the market largely determines what goods and services get produced, who gets them, and how the economy grows. The great thing about our economy is we decide what's going to be available. The, the people who go create products and services, they have an intuition about what the consumer is going to need, and they have to anticipate what those needs and wants are before the consumer does. And so um, when the iPhone came out, the, this first you know, multi-device smartphone, that was a total risk you know, to anticipate that the consumer is going to want this. And then when the iPad came out, I remember I've watched these videos and seen shown in business class. It's really a fascinating thing. In fact, we have time, maybe not today, but I want to show you. Did anybody ever watch Steve Jobs introduce the iPhone on stage? It's really a, a fascinating thing because it shows you kind of the evolution of uh, the, the iPhone. But command economies are economy, economic systems in which the government largely decides what goods and services we produce, who will get them, and how the economy will grow. So what is the problem with that picture? In one system, pretty much the consumers decide what we're going to get. In another system, the government tells us what we're going to get. The problem is that is what if you don't want that, you know? What if you like cotton blankets, but the government says we want, we're going to produce wool blankets for you? Wool's just not going to work for you. You know, you want cotton. And so by us being able to have the freedom to choose what products and services we want, we vote with our dollars. 
When you go buy things at the store, there's a computer somewhere that's capturing that data and saying consumers like this product because it sells thousands of units. So we want to make more products like this. And the one that only sold two units, we're gonna put that on clearance and we're not gonna make any more of that stuff because nobody wants that stuff. And that's a continuous cycle that happens every day, 365 days a year, all the days are open. They just continue to take that data and understand what sells, what doesn't sell. Neither free market nor command economies have created sound economic conditions. The trend has been towards mixed economies, which is an economic system which allocates some of the resources is made by the market and some by the government. So you see a lot of mixed economy things happening where, like I said, the government is producing some things usually on a need base. So during the pandemic, we saw the government step in. We actually saw the government step in and seize control of some industries in order to produce products and services that were needed at the time. And that, that's a, a rare thing that happens. What's that? Oh my God. You guys remember the toilet paper debacle? How many of you changed your behavior because of that? How many of you have like a bunch of toilet paper at the house now? Two people? I, three? I, I've changed, I have, I have toilet paper in stock, so. Yeah, but it's amazing that not more of you. In fact, my grand, great-grandfather, who was in World War II, um, I used to think he was crazy because I would go to his house and he would have like 300 rolls of toilet paper in the bathroom, just all around the ceiling. But now he understands, he grew up in the Depression. He was born just before it. So he knows what it's like to go through scarcity situations, and it makes you appreciate, you know, when you have access to stuff. Heck yeah! I, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll dig some pictures up. I went when I, during the pandemic. I took a lot of pictures of stuff like that. The toilet paper rack completely empty, you know. Um, in fact, I've got a picture in my office of just a, a Walmart store that was devastated. Um, in fact, a lot of you probably went to Walmart during the pandemic. How much of the food in the food side of Walmart would you say was sold out, percentage wise? Just guess. I have no idea. I'm just seventy-five percent. I was good. Yeah, what you think? 50, 60 percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was. Um. It was hit very hard. And I went to multiple different stores just checking it out and taking pictures. So let's talk about GDP real quick. These are some key economic indicators. Gross domestic product or GDP is the total value of final goods and services produced in a country in a given year. As long as a company is within a country's borders. Their numbers go into the country's GDP, even if they are foreign-owned. When the GDP changes, businesses feel the effect. The gross output is the measure of total sales volume at all stages of production. Why do you think this is an important metric? Why do you think it's important to track our GDP, and why do you think we want it to be high? What do you think? I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that, that we consider with this. GDP, we want it to go up because... Typically, there's a correlation between GDP going up and employment going up. And if employment's going up, what else is going up? Spending. Spending's going up, right? And so if spending goes up, that means more houses, more school systems, more stores, more clothes. Yeah, every, I mean, everything is, 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 it turns all the way to more car sales. So yeah, I mean, GDP is tied to those metrics we're talking about. If GDP's going down, the reverse happens. Less jobs, you know, less spending on cars, houses, clothing. Yeah, all these things are, yeah, starting to unwind. And so it's very much in a country's economic interest to have high outputs of GDP. And there's some charts here that talk about this. So this is a timeline or a decade chart that shows GDP growth. And you can see from 20, uh, 1950 through 2019, we've had 
pretty outstanding growth, and I can't see the scale on this. But oh, it's in trillions. So right now, as of 2019, we're doing $21 trillion. Actually, that's not correct. It's whatever's above trillion. Who knows what that is? I should know this. Quadrillion. So 21 quadrillion, is that correct? The way it reads is because that would be 300... That would be 374 trillion. That, that can't be right. It's got to be 21 trillion. That's what I think the output is. 21 trillion dollars, yeah. That, um, I, I know why, because there's a decimal point right there I'm not looking at. I know the output is 21 trillion, so we'll go with that number, because I'm, I'm certain that's, that's the neighborhood. So yeah, our economy does roughly 21 to 25 trillion a year now. And why is that good, once again? Because it shows that we've got outputs those outputs translate to jobs um, and money flowing through the economy. This is a comparison against other countries on Earth. And you see China is our next closest competitor. The interesting thing goes is it drops off sharply after that. You got basically U.S. and China are driving the world economy. They're in the driver's seat. And our next closest competitor is way off the mark, you know, down with uh, $5 trillion. So that um, just shows you how crucial it is that we want to keep the U.S. and China economies going. And so you hear a lot of noise in the news about these things, geopolitical events happening. But believe me when I say that these countries have a vested interest that we all are heading in a positive direction. Because if China or the U.S. had a major collapse, it would bring about a Great Depression across the earth. It would, really would. You would have massive layoffs. Um, the, the grocery stores would empty immediately. be a very bad situation. So... We have a, a survival-like like mechanism in place to keep these economies going. There is a movie I'm going to show in here called um, Too Big to Fail, and it talks about the 2008 financial crisis, and we were very, very, very close to having an economic collapse. Uh, that movie illustrates it very well. And so <clears throat> we've already mentioned it, but let's talk about the unemployment rate as another key economic indicator. This is the number of civilians at least 16 years or old who are unemployed and tried to find a job within the prior four weeks. Real unemployment rate is comprised of those included in the standard unemployment rate, plus those who are underemployed, discouraged, and marginally attached. So you never have an exact number because um, they stop tracking after four weeks. So if I am unemployed, I quit looking after four weeks, my data is no longer included in that metric. And so the real number could be vastly different. When the pandemic came out, uh, there was a lot of unemployment. It was high. And they were talking about, we don't know the exact number, but we speculate it's this. Uh, but you can kind of see uh, from the data and get, you can infer what the actual numbers are based on a number of different metrics. And so you can um, kind of throw out some different scenarios of what unemployment might be. But why is unemployment rate, once again, important? And we've talked about it already. Because of what? Why do people, what happens when people are not working? They don't have any income, so they're not doing what? They're not spending money, they're not paying taxes, they're not buying food, clothes, housing, you know, all that stuff that we use to turn the economic wheels. And so all these things we talk about in this class are interrelated. And um, you'll see more and more themes as we uh, get through the semester. So here's a chart that shows the unemployment rate from 89 to 2000. And what do you notice on this chart? Give me 
what your observation is on this chart. What, okay, so it skyrockets at the end of uh, 2019 into 2020. So what else do you notice from this chart? What's an observation that you would make from this chart? Don't be scared. It's okay to say the wrong thing. I will not embarrass you in front of everybody because you'll do it yourself when you say the wrong thing. I'm kidding. So, <laughs> no, what else can you notice from this chart? What do you think? Okay, you can see the 2008 recession. Yep. What else do you notice? What is going more drastically up and down as the years pass? So, basically, what you're observing are these boom and bust cycles. So, an economy will kind of get ahead of itself and it'll boom, but it may not so it can sustain that, and companies will pull back. They'll say, uh oh. You know, we've got to we've got we've hired all these people to do all this booming that we're doing because things are putting out, and then all of a sudden it's like a rug pull. They don't they don't have the sales to sustain it, and so they have to fire a bunch of people or lay a bunch of people off, and it creates when they start doing that, we go to an unemployment cycle, and then all of a sudden the economy has healed. You know, we, we've got to a point where we're starting to go into another boom, and as booms hit. Unemployment drops because we're hired now. We need people. We've got to get people in the door. We've got to hire. We've got to get things rolling, products and services. And then we get to a critical point again where, you know, sales have slowed. People are, you know, people are, are, are tight on money. And so they'll have to start letting people off again, you know. So you see these boom and bust cycles, and the unemployment rate reflects that. It goes back and forth. Um, yeah, but you'll continue. In fact, um, there's some latest data on this, but if you saw the rest of this chart, that spike that you saw when COVID hit, it immediately dropped back down. And right now we're at one of the lowest employment rates we've been in in decades, it's like three or 4%. Um, other questions or observations on this? So boom and bust, you'll see that. So some other inflation or, or indicators or key, key economic indicators. Inflation, the general rise in prices of goods and services over time. So economics will teach you that inflation is normal and that a kind of a normal inflation rate is 2%. What do you, do you guys think it's normal for prices to rise over time? What do you guys think? Hmm? This is an opinion. Why do you say that, Angel? Because even because at some point it's just going to be too expensive. Right. And like, um, I don't know, there's a... Uh, uh, intrinsic value to like things like food, so it wouldn't make sense that those prices will just continuously go up and up and up in price. Yeah, my parents they always you always you've probably heard the story from your parents or grandparents they, they used to take a dollar and go to the movies. Have you heard this? They go to the movie, they watch two movies, get a candy bar, popcorn, get a hot dog on the way home, and then put a quarter in their pocket. Some crazy story like that. For me to go to the, the movies and do the same thing, it probably costs twenty five dollars. Okay. Something like that. Well, how, what were you thinking? For just one person. Thirty bucks. We'll say thirty. Go with Holly's example. So that's a thirty X since you know, fifty, sixty years ago. So if it's thirty dollars today and another thirty X in fifty, sixty years, it'd be nine hundred dollars to go to the movies and get a hot dog, drink and a popcorn. Isn't that crazy? And 
it'll be normal. But is that normal is what I'm asking. Does that seem rational, reasonable, and normal to you guys? Yeah. So, like, you know, and once again, this is all opinion. Like, there are, there are contrasting economic systems we're talking about. And there's actually contrasting uh, or conflicting. I'll see you, bud. Have a good one. Enjoy open house, okay? I will. Uh, to talk about to log into uh, McGraw Hill. Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. Um, there's actually conflicting economic theories. In basic economics, we talk about something called Keynesian economics. Uh, but there's other economic schools, and we actually talk about some of that in here. But inflation is what we've been going through of late. Have you guys felt it? You know what I'm talking about, right? When I was a teenager. Gas was 89 cents a gallon, somewhere in that neighborhood. Today it's around 350. That's a pretty big leap in 25 years. Um, just like, this is so nuts. I bought a house two years ago, and in two years, just the inflation alone has raised the price of that house $30,000. That's insane to me. That is nuts. And what does that mean? That means if I sold it today and I got full value for it, I would make $30,000 in equity without doing nothing but owning that house. You know, like, but that is not a healthy thing, though, if I go to buy that house today and I have to pay $30,000 more because average people are not making $30,000 more a year, you know, to offset that increase in the cost of the, uh, the, the house. Disinflation is a situation in which prices uh, increases are slowing. That's what's happening now. We're going through a disinflationary period because we still have it, but it's slowing down. Deflation, the situation in which prices are declining, that's actually a really bad situation. It's where the economy is in such bad shape, people don't have enough money to buy products, so they have to drop prices on a lot of products in order to spur spending. Stagflation is a situation where the economy is slowing, but prices are still going up anyhow. And shrinkflation, what do you think that is? It's a real term. What do you think shrinkflation is? Yo. Yep. So you might remember the old design of the old Gatorade bottle. Do you remember the way the old bottles used to look? This size, I don't know, but they were kind of bowed out. But if you buy one now, it's kind of hollowed in like this. Um, they actually trimmed a few of the ounces out of it. It was 32, and now I think it's 28 or 29. I know somebody observed that for me and report to me next week what you think. But it's like that on ice cream. It's like that on cereal. So you buy the same, you say you buy buy a box of cereal is four fifty, used to have you know twenty two ounces. Now it might only have twenty one or nineteen or twenty ounces in it. So they shrink the product that you're getting. You're paying the same price, but the manufacturer is cutting you out of what they used to. It's a way to kind of psych out the consumer. So you think you're still getting that same product at that same price, but you're actually just getting less of the product at the same price. So that is a real phenomenon that happens a ton. That's a, that happens a lot in grocery stores. So let's look at some other uh, inflationary things. Stores like this one restored, uh, resort to weigh people's money rather than counting it. This is what happens when you have uh, hyperinflation. So this is, these are real images of the Weimar Republic in Germany when they were trying to print their way out of their economic woes. And it would just be stacks of cash that had little to no value. Um, so... German mark needed to buy one ounce of gold. In 1919, it was 170. By 1923, which is four years later, it was 87 trillion. That's a huge difference, you know. 
in the modern world, in our time now, uh, Zimbabwe has trillion-dollar bills. Trillion-dollar bills because they've inflated their money supply so much that it becomes worthless. At the end of the day, what money really is is a medium of exchange. It means that I can take, here's a gum wrapper. I can take whatever I want to, and as long as you believe there's value associated with this, we can exchange this for something of value. If you've got a good service, you say, well, this represents some work that I did, and somebody paid me this as a representation for my work, and I'm going to give you this representation for your good or service, you can now take this and it represents value, whatever we assign to it. But value can be assigned to anything. Paper is supposed to represent, originally it represented gold or metals or a tangible asset. And now that we went off the gold system in 1971 in this country, uh, we don't have anything associated with value except the government's promise that there is value associated with us. So when you go to a job, let's say you get hired tomorrow, they're gonna pay you $50,000 a year. They're saying, we value the time you're gonna give us $50,000 a year. And so you get those monies and then you can trade them for other things that people have worked for to create goods and services. That's what it is, it's all a kind of a shell game at this point. And we'll talk about the national deficit. And so, some other ones, the CPI and the PPI. The Consumer Price Index is the monthly statistic that measures the pace of inflation. Core inflation is the CPI minus food and energy costs. And the Producer Price Index is an index that measures the change in prices at the wholesale level. So these are just a couple more economic indicators. So productivity in the service sector. New technology adds to the quality of the services provided, but not to the worker's output. A new form of measurement needs to be created to account for the quality as well as the quantity of outputs. Is there a product that any of you buy that you really appreciate the quality of the product? Is there anything that any of you own that's like, yes, I buy this because it's nice. What is it? Uh, I swing hammer. A, a what? I had a freaking hammer, like bought it like five years ago. Okay. So, like, Scratches, nothing, no rust. What, say the brand again. Is it S-Wing? S-Wing. S-Wing. Okay, okay. So S-Wing. Okay. So S-Wing hammer. How much is an S-Wing hammer roughly? Like about uh, 20 bucks. 20 bucks. So how much is a typical hammer? Five bucks, six bucks? Like 10, 15. So this is a, it costs double what a traditional hammer costs. Oh, yeah, but like all the other hammers, like right. they got, they chip and all that. And uh, they got a smooth face. So right. So they wood. But this one is a mill face, which means that it like softens. So when you hit the wood, it like softens the blow and it doesn't snap it. And it's stayed the same, basically. So, so when you hold it, you can appreciate that it's a quality product and you know it's worth the extra money because of how nice of a device it is or, or okay. tool it is. Okay. Did you have something, John? Did you have something, John? I thought you had something. Okay. Do anybody else have a, a piece of something they have that's a quality something? Um, I play guitar. That's one of the things I do on the side. And I started playing guitar back in 1996, a long time ago now. My parents bought me a guitar. And I had that guitar until like probably about five years ago. And all of a sudden one day that neck on the guitar just snapped. And it, it broke. And I was like, okay, well, I need to get another card guitar. But I didn't want to buy a cheap guitar because um, I wanted a quality instrument. Well, because I wanted a quality one, I just kept kicking the can down the road, you know, got, I'm going to buy a house, and I didn't buy a guitar for years. Well, this year, I was on vacation in February, I said, you know, I'm at, a, I'm at a music store, I looked at this Taylor guitar that was about 450 bucks, 
It's really nice. And I said, you know, I like it. Well, still, I'm still not going to get it, though. I looked at the same guitar for years. I went online and looked at it, and they said, you can get this guitar today um, interest-free for six months. So I only had to pay, like, I don't know, 70 bucks a month or something. So I said, okay, I'll buy it. So I bought it. I got it. And when I got it, it's a really quality instrument, you know. And the reason I'm talking about that is, like, you can tell a tangible difference in a quality device or, or tool like you're talking about versus a cheap one, you know. And so when it comes to cheap uh, versus quality, you might get that item cheaper, but it might break sooner or not be able to give you that same quality experience that you would have uh, with something more expensive. So there are booms and busts, as I talked about. These are the four phases of long-term business cycles. An economic boom is when business is booming, things are going well. We do have recessions, two or more consecutive quarters of decline in GDP. That indicates that um, sales are slowing, uh, businesses or outputs are slowing. So that's a kind of a warning sign that we may be headed to a recession. A depression is a little bit different. It's a severe recession, usually accompanied by def deflation. Uh, deflation, remember they lower prices. That show, that's really a bad sign because it's, um, stores are having to take hits to move product to keep their, their money coming in. But then that's, that uh, <clears throat> bus cycle spurs that money flowing and actually helps uh, kick into the recovery when the economy stabilizes and starts to grow, eventually leading to an economic boom. And the government is a part of this process. You know, we talked about socialism a little bit, but they usually kick in more dollars into the economy during recession and depression states in order to soften the blow, uh, in order to help spur recovery. And so you see the government, and we'll talk about the Federal Reserve in this class, um, throwing dollars at the system to try to help uh, move things along. So we're getting into this now, fiscal policy. The government's uh, efforts to keep the economy stable by increasing or de de decreasing taxes or government spending. There's a couple schools of thought, Keynesian economics, which I mentioned a while ago. Keynesian economic theory is a theory that a government policy of increasing spending and cutting taxes could stimulate the economy in a recession. We've been going through Keynesian economics for quite a while in this country. Um, up until COVID, we were at near zero interest rates and um, we were spending money like crazy. We still spend a lot of money. But uh, that is a stimulating formula up until it stops working. You know, and what, what can you, I mean, uh, when COVID hit, um, we had to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, and to contrast that against the 2008 crisis, the 2008 crisis originally was around $700 billion, which is a lot of money. That was a, a whole heck of a lot of money. But we spent four or five times that in the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, and so it was really uh, a, a crucial point in our economic history. So tools of fiscal policy is taxation and government spending. There is a counter theory though, Austrian economic theory. The Austrian school holds that interest rates are determined by the subjective decision of individuals to spend money now or in the future. In other words, interest rates are determined by the time preference of borrowers and lenders. In other words, saving money leads to growth under this theory because if people, um, people arbitrarily will decide to save money for the future or spend it now, most do spend it now, and that helps fuel the economy. So a couple different schools of thought. The book does not mention Austrian economics at all. That's why I put it in highlight here. That's just something I wanted to talk to you guys about. That's something I actually read a book about it within the past few years, so I wanted to throw that out there to you. So stabilizing the economy through fiscal policy continues 
The national deficit is the amount of money the federal government spends beyond what it collects in taxes for a fiscal year. So the deficit increases the national debt. Those are two different numbers. So if the budget is this every year and we spend this, the difference between the two is the deficit. The, that deficit or difference between the two goes to the national debt, which is the sum of government deficits over time. A national surplus is when the government takes in more money than the revenue it spends. So our, our, debt, our budget might be this, uh, and then we, we only spend this though. So whatever's left, that leads to a surplus. That's only happened one time in my lifetime, and that was in the early 90s. And so we often run deficits. One thing that is different between governments and households, governments and households are very different. If you guys go into debt every month, if you're spending more than you make, it leads to significant financial problems. Governments run in debt, it's a whole different ballgame because they can print money. They can issue new debt or government treasuries that the individual public or governments can buy and support that debt. And so it's a little different ballgame with governments than individuals. But that is the reason why so many people freak out over the national debt, which is somewhere around $35 trillion right now. So you say that number, $35 trillion, it's the biggest it's ever been ever. Um, and it seems scary because there's no possible way out of it. The only way out of it is through um, basically two ways. We have what's called a hard default which would crash the world economy and destroy millions of people's lives. I mean, it'd be horrible. Or you can have what's called a soft default, which is where we print enough money over time to inflate the money supply and shrink the debt because what's $35 trillion when you've got, you know, 900 quadrillion or whatever, you know, huge number we get to at some point in the future. All right, so this just shows you the national debt over time. And you can see up through the 90s, it was at a basically a decent slope clip. But then once we got into the early 2000s, it really started to go parabolic. And it's just gone higher and higher you know, each year. So the national debt has reached over $25 trillion. That's That number needs to be updated. It's actually closer to $35 trillion. We'll look at the debt clock in a second. If $1 bills were stacked, the national debt would stretch over 1.575 million miles the moon is only 238,000 miles away. So that's just to give you some context for how big that is. Let's check out this debt clock real quick. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. So this is a website you could go to and look at the national debt clock. This is happening in real time. This shows you right now we've got $32.7 trillion in debt. The debt per citizen is $97,000. Debt per taxpayer is uh, $258,000. Federal spending, $6.3 trillion. And our budget deficit, which we were just talking about, right now we're running a budget deficit of $1.7 What that means is at the end of the year, that money will get tacked onto the, the national debt. You know, And so um, it gives you some debt-to-GDP ratio. In 1960, it was 52%. 80s, it got better, 34%. Then it went back to 56 in 2000. And now, yeah, that's a really toxic number. So, But this shows you a lot of different metrics in real time. Tax revenue is $4.6 trillion. Um, gross GDP is at, is that, yeah, $27 trillion right now. So, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. So you guys can go check this out. Just type in... Uh, 
usdebtclock.org, and you can show people exactly what these numbers look like. They basically take a formula for how much debt does and figure out how much uh, would go up or down over time <clears throat> based on current metrics and are able to extrapolate what this stuff would be. So really interesting. All right. Any questions about anything from Chapter 2? This is your time to speak now or forever hold your peace. So um, I've talked to a few of you about Chapter 1 assignment. Uh, most of you have we've got to, you've gotten figured out how to do it. <clears throat> if you need help with Chapter 1, please uh, shoot me an email. Um, I will email out the lecture for Chapter 2 um, today or tomorrow, and you'll be able to have access to these slides and, and check this out at the house. Chapter 2 homework is not due until next Tuesday. Uh, there is a little bit of flexibility there on that, too, and I'll talk to you about it on Tuesday. But if you guys don't have any questions for me, that's what I got for the lecture, and I'll see you guys next Tuesday, okay? Appreciate you. Have a good weekend.